You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast, featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. FDNY rescue paramedics undergo thousands of hours of rigorous training to integrate emergency medicine into the operations of FDNY Special Operations Command. Rescue paramedics are trained in technical rescue, hazmat, marine rescue operations, and specialize in bringing world-class medicine to trapped victims at the scene of a technical rescue environment. On July 30th, 2021, rescue paramedics Hugh Smith and Shawane George and rescue Lieutenant Paul Artizone were presented with a challenge that would test their many years of training and experience. Both rescue medics arrived on scene to find FDNY Special Operations Units operating to rescue two trapped victims in a lean-to type collapse. Being the sole rescue medics on their respective units that day, they paired up to make the entry and join the rescue effort. Together with Lieutenant Paul Artizone, the crew worked alongside fire suppression and special operations companies to assess the two pinned workers and began simultaneous medical management of both victims. Here with me today to talk about this arduous and dangerous operation are paramedics Hugh Smith and Shawane George, as well as Lieutenant Paul Artisan. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank, Thank you. you. Good morning. So before we talk about this complex operation, how about we all introduce ourselves, talk a little bit about how you came to EMS and what your work history is. So we'll start with you, Lieutenant. Uh, my name is, uh, again, Paul Artisan. Joined the fire department, came in as a paramedic in 2011. Prior to that, I had been a paramedic since 2003, working in the, uh, the voluntary hospital system. Wanted to uh, be a part of something bigger where I had more opportunity to grow. And I joined the fire department, worked in Manhattan, Station 16, Station 8. Became a lieutenant in 2015. I worked in the Bronx, went back to Manhattan before joining the Hashtag Battalion in 2017. Hugh? My name is Hugh Smith. I came on the fire department as a paramedic in 2010. Prior to that, I was working as an EMT outside of Philadelphia. And I moved up here when my wife got into graduate school and just kind of fell in love with the job here. I got on and was initially assigned to Station 58, which is where I first met then-Lieutenant Cassio. After that, I joined the Haztec Battalion in 2012 and came back to Station 58 to work 58 Zebra, and then from there went to rescue school in 2014, and I joined the Rescue Battalion on 3-9 Rescue, and I've been there ever since. Okay, and Shawane? Hi, good morning. I'm Shawane George. I've been a rescue paramedic for a total of one year. I came on to the fire department in 2016, been a paramedic since 2010. Joined the fire department as a result of wanting to join something bigger. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) So before we move into the rescue operation, Paul, why don't you explain to our listeners what the Haztec Battalion is and the rescue paramedic program? Sure. So throughout New York City, there are 39 specialized ambulances providing care in the New York City 911 system. They're all trained for the medical management of patients within a hazardous materials assignment on both the ALS and the BLS level. Mm -hmm. Within those 39 units, 11 of them have even more additional training. Those are the rescue paramedic ambulances. So in addition to the training for the medical management in a hazmat situation, they have a medical training in the medical management of patients in what you mentioned earlier, technical rescue situations, confined space, trench, as well as some high-rise fire ground operations. 
As a Hesai Battalion, there's two officers and a captain that are also out on, out on the road each day as the field supervisors for all 39 units, as well as specifically those rescue units to, to join them on rescue assignments. So that's what you're assigned to do? That's my assignment, correct. And that would be a citywide assignment? Correct, citywide assignment. There's two of us working. One generally covers Bronx and Manhattan, mm-hmm. and the other one covers Brooklyn, Queens, and Staten Island. Oh, so they're both on duty at the same time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then the rescue paramedics are scattered throughout the city. Correct. And so are the HAZTAC paramedics. Yep, all all 39 units are are strategically located throughout the five boroughs, the rescue being mostly about three in each each borough. And for our listeners who are interested in hearing more about the technical aspects of the training, scroll back to Season 3, Episode 28, where we talk more in depth about the rigorous requirements and um, challenges of that, that level of training. Now, specific to this incident on July 30th, 2021, Hugh, why don't you start with telling us how you get dispatched to this assignment and sure. uh, what you so find when you get there? I was working what we would call half rescue. So normally there would be two rescue paramedics assigned to each rescue unit. Mm-hmm. And that day my partner was detailed out for another assignment for the day. So I was working with a non-rescue, or she's Haztec, but was working the rescue unit that day. Mm-hmm. We got reports over the fire radio of a major technical response for a structural collapse with reports of workers pinned in the rubble. And so we started making our way over there. And on the way over, I'm starting to think through like, okay, we're getting reports of multiple people. I'm kind of on my own. So how am I going to start triaging and allocating resources and, and figuring out who needs care first and how to prioritize patients? Trying to think through getting in contact with Lieutenant Artizone, figure out how far away he is. He's working the two truck, so he could be working anywhere in the city at that point. And then where's my next closest available rescue medic unit coming from, which could be 48 Rescue in downtown Brooklyn, or or 22 Rescue, or 45 Rescue coming from Long Island City. So going into the assignment, I was figuring that I was probably going to be alone for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And we arrived on scene. My partner helped me grab bags off of the truck. We put everything on the stretcher, started rolling up to the command post. I walked up to the command post, and who should I see but Schwain George, who had just finished the, I think it was the most recent Rescue Basic class. But he was at the command post in his technical rescue gear and ready to go. And so how did you realize that this could end up being an issue? That day, I was actually 8-1 at Kings County Hospital. I heard the job came over as a trauma, and then I transmitted over the borrow frequency as a collapse. So at that point, I know 3-9 Rescue, I ETR 3-9 Rescue, and I know 3-9 Rescue was already 63, and I believe 4 Rescue was on a job. So I notified my partner, and I let my partner know. I said, listen, um, we're going to hit this button, and we're going to go to this job. And we were assigned. Thankfully, as soon as we hit it, we were assigned to the job. I got there, I think, a few minutes before you did. And they saw me in the technical rescue ensemble, and they automatically ran to me. said, the BLS give me a report that we have two pin workers. So I did advise them that I'm not on a rescue unit at this time, but one is assigned. Literally a minute or two later, Trina Rescue come hauling. I actually saw you, and I saw him with a non-rescue personnel, and that was like a light in my eyes. I said to you, I give you a quick brief of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, you're going to work. So we paired up. And we formulate a plan, and that's how we execute. And you've never worked together before on this level prior to this incident? No, we'd never worked together on this level. I help out with the Rescue Basic School, so I was one of the adjunct instructors for his program. So I was familiar with with Schwain and and how he works prior to to doing this, but this was our first 
This was our first rescue scenario together. We've done a couple of hazmat jobs hazmat together, jobs together uh, prior to this. Yeah. And those were also very interesting. <laughs> At this point, as you compare notes with each other and formulate a plan, do we have Lieutenant Artizonia on the scene yet? At that point, I was still responding from Queens. I was responding from our station in downtown Flushing. On the way there, you're, you're monitoring the different radios mm -hmm. uh, in terms of what's going on at the assignment, who's assigned to it. Paramedic Smith had contacted me via the cell phone to let me know he was on scene and that Paramedic George was on scene as well. I work in a non-rescue unit, but having the ability to help out in a rescue situation. So I advised those two to work together. I made the proper notifications to the medical branch director you know, that that would be happening, and I was aware of it. I also made many other notifications while responding, notifying the five Mary, the on-duty physicians of the nature of the incident, mm -hmm. being in communication with the medical branch director and other responding units. And they were already in the building treating the patients upon my arrival. So what's the next step for you two? So we got together and made our, our game plan. We touched base with the medical branch director. We touched base with fire operations and they advised us like, we're finishing doing some initial stabilization stuff. Give us like five minutes and, and we'll get you inside. So we kind of went through the equipment that we had on scene and said, okay, you take this, you take this, and we'll share equipment back and forth once we get a clearer picture of what's going on inside. At this point, do you know how many victims there are? Uh, yes, we had a report of two by the medical branch director. Once the scene is stabilized, and this is just such that it's a little bit safer for you to go in, right? Yeah, they've put the initial shoring in place so that it's safe for people to actually move around without as substantial a risk of further collapse. So at that point, when we made entry, we got to up the exposure one side, there was a staircase that led to the second floor where the collapse had occurred. And we got to the top of the staircase and I actually made contact with Brian Kelly from Squad One. He gave us a face-to-face -face report that could not have been more similar to a scenario you practice in rescue school. Really? Him and I know each other from working at the Rescue Basic together. And so he said, hey, Hugh, this is what I have. One patient here, one patient here quick rundown of what was going on with each one. And I said, okay, I'm gonna take this one. Shwain, why don't you go take the one closer to the exposure one side. In relationship to each other, how far apart are these patients? So I think we couldn't be more than six feet, but the noise and the environment, it was like as though we might as well be in different rooms. Really? Yeah. You could have told me 20 or 30 feet and I would have absolutely believed so you. So you can't yeah. yell out to each other? No. no. Once, once we separated, it was essentially like we were operating entirely on our own. On our own, yeah. Mm. Interesting. And to add to that, the liaison between the two of us was Lieutenant Ortizon because he, he's the one that kept us on the same page as we were, you know, treating the patient and where we were and how long we were in the um, operation. So tell me a little bit about what type of medical or trauma condition is this patient in? So both patients had been trapped by a wall that had come down during demolition of the building, mm. and both were trapped by their lower extremities. The most challenging thing from our management perspective, or one of the most challenging things, was that neither patient spoke any English. Yes. Did you have a translator? No. No. So it was a lot of pantomime and whatever I could communicate through whatever English they did have, but they both spoke Cantonese. And then on top of that, both patients were pinned by their legs over open floor joists. So access to the patients was... I'm going to call it precarious because you kind of had to kneel down over open floor joists. And then there was maybe a one-story drop to the next floor below with nothing beyond the two-by-four that you're kneeling on to really support you. 
to get out and, and actually make contact with the patient. And that was your situation as well, Shreem? Yes. So I got to give it to the rescue battalion who was already on scene. What they did, they actually created padding for me. And the padding, it was like literally a six by six. And that was sort of my like workstation. Uh, so it was almost like a little platform for platform, you? Platform, yes. Similar situation, as you explained, the gentleman did not speak any English, so it was sort of eye communication, and you got to give him that reassurance that we're here to help you. That kind of like worked, and he started trusting me, and I could see it in his eyes, and that's how it's kind of make the job a little easier. It make it easier on me, and it also make it easier on the rescue team who was trying to get him out. So while you are each providing advanced life support, medical care. The rescue battalion is around you, in and around you probably, Yes. yes. trying to extricate this patient, right? Yes. Disentangle, really. Yes. Yes. First. Yeah. The work never stopped. The work just kept going. It's like, basically, from our standpoint was we were there just to stabilize enough to provide management so they could do their job without causing any further arm or any further... Um, right, without the patient deteriorating in the interim. Right. How long is it taking them to disentangle at this point? Do you have any sense of time? That's one of the things that you tend to cover a lot during the Rescue Basic is that you need to be keeping track of how long we've actually been in this scenario. And so that's one of the, the questions that instructors will frequently ask students, you know, maybe five or ten minutes into a scenario, is how long do you think you've been here? Mm. Uh, because as a student, it feels like you've been there, I don't know, an hour and a half. It's been five minutes. So we were keeping track of time. I think we were inside for 45 minutes or so. Yeah. From uh, the time you arrived to the time the yeah. patient's disentangled? Yes. And that's not an uncommon scenario in this type of technical rescue, is it? I mean, it was a load-bearing wall that was pinning both patients, so there was a lot of work that had to be done to stabilize that to prevent further collapse once we moved that, and, or once fire rescue really moved that and, and was able to extricate the patient. So one of the things that we were really concerned about, considering the amount of weight that was on the patients, was that there could be something called compressive syndrome or, or crush syndrome, which mm -hmm. is a, a reperfusion injury that happens and, and causes a bunch of chemical imbalances, but can be lethal even after extrication for patients that aren't treated properly prior to extrication. And that's one of the main focuses of, of our training is how to incorporate that into, into the special operations environment. And then when I arrived on scene, they were already both inside the building, like we mentioned, treating the patients. I went up, made face to face with the medical branch director, our, our officers on scene, informed them I was going to go in to assist the rescue paramedics. I went upstairs. Both members were with their respective patients. Again, really tough working conditions, just kind of like uh, kneeled down on a tiny little work platform, and they were kind of stuck to that, that platform the entire duration of the incident. It's got to be very uncomfortable. They definitely looked uncomfortable, but they weren't complaining, I can tell you that. They, they were there doing what needed to be done. And I went up and I, I got a report from Paramedic Smith, made sure he was okay, saw anything I could do to, to assist. Same with Paramedic George. And again, they said it was maybe six to eight feet between the patients, but it was open floor joists. And it was a lot of cribbing and struts to support what was remaining of the collapse. It hadn't collapsed yet. So from my perspective, it was delicate. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a tiptoe across this six to eight foot back and forth you know, which was pretty treacherous, and, and making sure I don't bump into anybody, uh, interfere in their patient care, don't bump into the supporting equipment. You know, and then once I assessed what they needed, I communicated with the crews outside. Mm -hmm. and, and I had had, on the way there, I had requested an additional rescue paramedic unit, and a rescue unit from Queens had arrived. Why would you do that? Uh, well, you have to consider if it's a prolonged extrication, if you have to swap members out. In this situation, that wasn't necessary, but it's, it's also good to have people of the same level of training outside of the collapsed building 
to assist you with drawing up any medications that you might need for these patients that are special to the rescue medics. So you can have them in front of the building, it's what we call an anticipator, and they'll assist you with getting the equipment inside. And that's exactly what they did. They were sharing equipment, so they had one cardiac monitor, smaller rescue monitor, so when the other unit arrived, I had them bring theirs. They ended up taking the equipment from both the rescue units that were on scene, the one I requested an additional one, kind of pooling all the equipment together, which gave two sets of everything, right. which worked out well with the two victims inside. Particularly that they have this physical distance and exactly. then all these constraints. And it's hard for them to, it's a lot easier for them to tell me what they need, for me to radio that to the medical branch director or to the units out scene, and then using fire resources to bring it upstairs to us. We also gave reports to the medical branch director. Once the physicians arrived on scene, they were monitoring the same frequency. We were able to communicate with the physicians on it as well. So the 5 Mary Corps is an emergency physician working for EMS operations, and they also have the same rescue technical training. They do. They, they're familiar with our capabilities, and they're aware of the additional medications and equipment we carry, and as well as the specialized protocols that we can operate under in these environments. Then the paramedics, as they're treating their patients, they're uh, assessing the patient, and then they're giving me the information, mm-hmm. and then I'm relaying that information onto the physician, who is then granting the, the orders for the additional treatments. And in this case, due to the prolonged extrication process, there was a lot of medication that needed to be repeated. So that report and that ongoing assessment from the paramedics, it was a constant throughout the entire extrication process. They assess, report to me, I report to the doctor, doctor gives the order, draw up the med, and hand it to the paramedics. There was this circle operation, but it had a lot of flow. Mm-hmm. And in addition to that too, we also had the additional rescue medic outside where they were telling me an equipment they needed, if they needed an additional blanket, if they needed a monitor, if they needed a IV setup, I would relay that to the rescue medic unit outside, sent up and given to the patient. It was this like round and round operation using multiple components, yeah, like paramedics, physicians. It worked very well. In addition to that, working so well with the the members of the Special Operations Command, mm-hmm. uh, the squad and the rescue companies, as they were extricating the patient, great communication. If they needed to move something, if they were giving us heads up as to what they were doing, mm-hmm. what, what they were planning on doing and what their expected results were and uh, how long it would take and things like that. It's, like Carmack Smith said, it's um, exactly how we trained. It was almost like a training scenario in real life. It definitely shows that training pays off. Right. And you train together with the Special Operations Command when you are doing these certification classes, right? Yes. Absolutely. So the first time you're seeing each other or working together is not necessarily in that real-life scenario. We also do annualized retraining. So we'll come back up for a Haztec refresher. We'll come back up for a rescue refresher. And so I don't necessarily go up and work with my regular partner every time because scenarios like this come up where I don't work with him. Right. So I'll work with somebody for that week from the Bronx or from Queens or from a different uh, rescue unit in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And we'll have an opportunity to kind of figure out what each other's flow is. Right. On this particular rescue assignment, do you come up across any sudden challenges that you know you had to adapt and overcome? My challenge was just, I believe, where I was, the, the limited space. But, you know, once you overcome, it was smooth like butter. <laughs> So whose patient is available to be transported first? My patient was disentangled 
fire rescue actually um, came to me and told tell me, listen, we could get him out in five minutes. And within five minutes, as they said, the patient was um, disentangled and he was out. Once the patient was disentangled, I assist with getting him out and I transfer him to the await and rescue unit. And I give the face-to-face to our medical director, I believe it was Dr. Seda. Mm-hmm. I let him know what happened, what we did. Also spoke to Chief Bonilla, who was outside, mm-hmm. and he told me, okay, that's good, and now head back inside, and I assist you. You know, I became your anticipator. And what does that mean, an anticipator? So, like Lieutenant Artizone was talking about earlier, in that environment, it's not necessarily practical to draw up or, or mix medications or, you know, leave the patient's side based on where you are. And so you need somebody to say, having been in the training that you've been through and, and understanding your patient's clinical presentation, these are the things that I expect to be coming down the line. And so I'm going to anticipate your needs and help prepare equipment for you or, or help you get things out. Okay. How much longer after this is your patient released? Not too much longer, was, maybe another 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, it was about that. So the first patient was pinned about an hour and five minutes total time. Paramedic Smith's patient was about an hour and 25 minutes. How does the continuation of care work out? Do you hand off to yet another unit or you two now take over this? So at this point, because we had already sent Shawane's patient to the hospital with 4-5 rescue, we ended up taking the patient together to the hospital, okay. uh, especially being there were no more patients pinned inside. You know, in a situation with the first patient, once that patient is freed, removed from the building, that rescue paramedic unit that is outside 4-5 rescue, they're a bit of fresher medics, mm-hmm. and they transport the patient to the hospital. In the ideal situation, if we had an additional rescue paramedic unit, once this second patient was freed, would have been able to transport that to the patient hospital to give these two guys a little bit of rehab time right. after a very intensive 45 minutes of work. That wasn't the case. The patient care continued all the way to the hospital. Right. So after being freed up and being kneeled down in this position for such a long time, to continue with the transport and all the way to the hospital is, uh, is exceptional work. It is exceptional these guys. work. I agree with that. So. I agree with that. For your actions that day, you were recipients of the Christopher J. Prescott Medal, the highest honor the department can bestow annually to a member of EMS operations at our annual Medal Day ceremony. For those of you who don't know, the Prescott Medal was named after Christopher Prescott, who was the first FDNY EMS member to make the supreme sacrifice in the line of duty in 1994. Is this a first medal? Yeah, for me, yes. Yeah. I was very fortunate to attend Medal Day in 2019. I had received the uh, Tracy Allen Lee Medal. So this was my second. But it was, every time you go, it was an honor. And, you know, when you, when you think about why these medals are named and who they're named for, it is truly an honor. How was it on Medal Day? What was it like? It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was surreal. Exciting? It was very exciting. Yeah. Scary? I think we're more nervous than anything nervous? else. Yeah. But um, very honored to be there, yeah. One thing I learned from going one time before is such a special moment, but it goes by so quick. It's such a fast day, you barely remember how it goes. Sometimes people do get a second shot at that as well uh, <laughs> to slow it down. You know, a situation like this, having that second chance to go, I, I knew that I, I, you really wanted to just enjoy the moment. You know, take, take it, it in. all in, exactly, and slow the day down because it is something you may never get to do again. It goes by fast, but, but it's, it's such a wonderful day. Everybody had a chance to bring family yes. to Metal Day? Yep. Yes. Uh, my dad was actually on vacation in Alaska and, and came back early to come to Metal Day. Oh, no kidding. Which was, it was pretty cool. But nobody's more proud than a parent, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's nice to get to know your members on a personal level and just know about their lives. Also nice to meet their families as well. Mm-hmm. You know, when Hugh talked about um, 
Well, his son was there. You know, I've heard about his son, but I got to see his son, and that's cool. My son was so excited he went to school the next day and, and made an announcement to his whole class about it. Oh, that's very sweet. My mom, my wife, and my daughter was there, and they were very excited. I think they were more excited than I was, but they were very, oh, no very um, honored. Right? There's nobody, nobody's more proud than your own parents. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us, why is it such an honor to be recognized this way? Just being a paramedic is hard. Just being an EMT, being a first responder is hard. It's a commitment. As we all know, we're all first responders here is a commitment. It's a life commitment. You give up a lot. You sacrifice a lot. We just spoke about people's parents and their kids and their wives. It's a lot of time away. Holidays, birthdays, special events. And then the farther you go, you know, paramedic, rescue paramedic, hashtag paramedic. The commitment gets bigger and bigger and bigger and the hours get bigger. There's often times where you're like, wow, I put so much of my life into this. And then so you get something like this that happens, and then you get an honor like this, and then it's a, it's a reminder of why mm. you put so much time into it. We don't do it for the medals. It's not like, oh, finally, I, I got a medal. This is what I was striving for. But it, it's, it's one of those things where it wasn't the medal, it was the job, and it was the training, and it was all the hours and the effort and, and the hard work put into it that gets honored. Right. So that's what makes uh, receiving a medal like this so special. Mm. So. That's a great answer. And I'm being honest, too. I'm an emotional I know guy. You I'm getting are. all choked up over here. No, I know you, you know, are being it's honest. Not just, uh, it's not just lip service. It's true, though, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, also got to add to with the rescue battalion, the commitment that the instructors and even the chief of the rescue battalion put into the uh, program, I do feel that it's one of those things that you have to experience it to really um, understand mm-hmm. the commitment and the um, feeling behind it. It's a small group, but it's a very hardworking group. Like, you know, and as I say, you always said, you know, Ollie was my partner. He was also my instructor. And it's like one of those things that I really, you know, are very um, proud of to be part of it. It's really, it's nice to have people that you have taught or that you've worked with. Having taught for Schwain's class, I really had the opportunity to be like, oh, this is somebody I know is really solid. Mm -hmm. Like, I I know how he was in class. And I don't think there's anybody that makes it through that program that I don't have complete confidence in. Yeah, it's mm, true. That makes sense. They all have great work ethic, but their commitment to the community, their commitment to the program, you know, their desire to always want to do the best they can and put in 100% effort. No, nobody in this program is here by uh, taking a short road. They all, they all earned it. They all worked hard. And you know that. I want to thank all of you for taking the time to be here today and share with our listeners. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Very extraordinary incident. You should be proud. And if this is just a reflection of one of many similar types that you just suddenly, in this instance, were acknowledged for it, this acknowledgement, this recognition is for every time that you rose to the occasion, really. Sure. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm Chief of Staff Elizabeth Cassio. For more training and information from our department's subject matter experts, Go to fdnypro.org. FDNY Pro is online at fdnypro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest.